Okay, guys, I think we just got our moderator set up in the queue. Give me that thumbs up. You guys hearing everything okay? It's been a little while since I've done this. So I'm a little bit rusty. There's that thumbs up. Guys, first of all, let me say thanks uh, for asking for the show back. A lot of people uh, unprompted in the last few days have been asking to kind of bring Mike Drop back. Um, I kind of wa wanted to let it go, see if there was interest. I had a, a, an expectation that there might be some interest, especially by some of you guys, as we got closer to the election. And I think over the last few months, hey, Peg, good to see you. Thanks for joining us in the chat. Um, the interest in the election is obviously heating up. And you can just tell by the activity and kind of what's generating. And so I've been watching that very closely. I've been involved with a whole lot of professional stuff. We can talk about that. But there's a ton, a ton of stuff to talk about, guys, a ton of stuff to be back. And um, it, one thing I, I do want to do is if, if two things. The first is know this. This should be the last week that we are going to be on this platform, on Colin. Okay, Colin was bought by Rumble, and that's not something that I'm okay with. Um, there are certain things we have to live with. I know that there's a lot of consternation about threads because it's Zuckerberg's platform. We all know what's going on with Twitter and X and Elon Musk. I think as we, as we work through the gyrations of all this, we're going to have to figure where we end up next. And I'm working on a couple of solutions, all of which we'll let you know of as we go forward. But I do want the values of what we're trying to do here being supported by, um, by your time, your effort, your energies, as well as mine. And we don't want to be adding to the problem while we're discussing solutions. So, so know that, Colin. Mic drop, hopefully we'll stay the same, keep the same thematic, keep the same title, so you'll be able to find... Uh, the show somewhere, but I am looking for a call-in feature uh, so that you guys can get your questions answered. Uh, and I like this format. I think not a lot of people do, not a lot of political consultants do that do this stuff. They'd rather, I think, do some of the podcasts where they can just kind of pontificate unchallenged, unquestioned. Um, I do some of that too. You guys listen, obviously, to, to Politicology and the Latino Vote Podcast, which may be kicking up again soon as we get into the election cycle. But I do want to make sure that we have this opportunity as we head into the next presidential cycle of you being able to ask questions. That's what worked during the 2020 cycle. It's where I got to know a lot of you. It's where we kind of introduced this concept and my uh, trying to explain things, at least as I see them. And I'm by all means not omnipotent and I'm not all knowing, but I've done this for a while now. And I think it brought a lot of people some calm as opposed to just getting the 30, 40,000 foot level stuff. Um, because I think sometimes that can create more anxiety. It can create more concern when you hear the talking head saying something and you pick up 20, 30% of it because they're not explaining the other 70, 80% of it. And that makes you even more nervous. So the goal here is kind of explore some of the mechanics behind why people are doing what they're, they're doing, why campaigns are operating the way that they are operating, why politicians are, are doing it from their, uh, are behaving the way that they're behaving. And more importantly, my expertise is, of course, working with the political consultants who advise them, who strategize for them, who guide them, who direct them, who protect them, who push them to do things that they wouldn't otherwise do uh, or, you know, or uh, or get them into trouble sometimes. And we'll explain that and we'll talk about that. But I do want you to know, again, that we are moving. Uh, if, if there's any disagreement, uh, shoot me a note. You guys know where to find me um, on the platform and on the type. But I, I do like. The idea of having feedback, uh, I think I probably talk way too damn much on these things, but I keep going when I'm not getting uh, questions asked. So if you do have questions, and guys, there's a lot of stuff to talk about tonight. There's a lot to talk about. And the last thing we want is me talking to my voice 
uh, blows out, which usually goes for about an hour, I think we've learned. Got some water here with me to kind of help help kind of um, keep things going for as long as I can. But there's there's just so many things. I am expecting to have a very robust conversation. So if you're even feeling it, go ahead and jump into the queue because I don't even want to start where you guys don't want to start. Um, but again, I, I want a reminder to everybody. It, it, and by the way, if you could shoot out and share that the conversation is happening right now on social media, do that. Let's get some other people to join. It sounds a little bit strange to be doing that as we're going to be moving platforms. But throughout the course of tonight, I'll be talking about the move and where we're going because I just don't feel good about about um, staying on a platform that is, you know, becoming a, a home and a haven to some 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 less than um, less than. Uh, some bad stuff is going on. We all know what the hell's going on. So let me just leave it at that. Um, I think is that. Hold on a second, real quick. I'm gonna. I'm turning on the queue now. If anybody wants to jump in, you can. Um, this is making me uh, um, a little bit nervous because it's a public queue, which means anybody can jump in. Um, most of most of the folks here that join us, I, I trust. But again. This platform here with Rumble uh, and with with Twitter's um, craziness with with the Musk stuff and just the complete flooding of the zone of the, the right wing stuff is just crazy. I don't know if you're all experiencing it too, but mine's gone up at least thirty fold um, just in the un you know um, just the unsolicited voices that are coming into Twitter uh, is crazy. We should probably talk about that too because I think Twitter. Um, you look, I've been hopeful that Twitter was going to be in trouble for a couple of times. I'm getting much more active on threads. I was there on Mastodon. I've got a presence on both of those. I don't want to live on 15 different social media platforms, guys. I've got stuff, better stuff to do during the day, too. But I do want to make sure that, that the show is accessible and this community stays engaged. But I will say this. With the, uh, with the Hamas, um, the, the massacre that's gone on in Israel and the, the sheer... Uh, flooding of the zone of, of disinformation, I think has really finally jarred journalists out of being in the, in the Twitter sphere in that X space. And I have always said, I've said on the show a lot, as long as the journalists have their primary identity um, on Twitter, it will, it will continue to exist. It has to, because that's where they were pushing out news. Now they're realizing that they can't do it anymore. They can't stay on that platform uh, and be drowned out by false narratives and, and just clear disinformation campaigns. So that's changing. Uh, and I, I, I do believe if you're not on threads now, I would I would encourage you to do so. I know a lot of people push back and said, Mike, don't do it. This is Zuckerberg. This is you know, Meta. This is bad, I, I guess. Um, but it's I don't think it's as bad as anywhere near as bad as Twitter. Um, so. Um, I'm on Mastodon, like I said. You'll find me. If you ever want to find me, you're going to find me somewhere. But just be thinking about where we're putting our thoughts, our actions, and our presence because it does make a difference. And um, I do want to bring up some of our folks now uh, to get this conversation going now that I have, have spent so darn much time uh, doing some of the some, some of the backgrounding here. Ronaldo, you're up. You're in the queue. Go ahead and unmute. You should be ready to go on your end. Um, and let's see if there you are. You there? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yeah, I hear you. Okay, awesome. First of all, Mike, thank you so much for coming back. I think I'm the one on Twitter that keeps on being like, "Come on, come back, come back. We need to know what's going on." Thank you so um, much. And um, 
you know, I, I have to say just to preface this is my first time on the on the live, I often listen through the podcast. Um, you know, I live in New York City, I'm in the Bronx, Latino, so I've listened to the Latino podcast. I, I feel um disconnected Boricua y Cubano, half and half. And I also left PR, moved to Miami, so I know the Florida situation and I know it well. <laughs> and so anyway. Point is, I say all of this to say sometimes I feel disconnected. You know, I talk to people from home, uh, Miami, uh, where my friends live, and, and I see the shift that's happening with people who weren't before. And now all of a sudden I'm like, oh, this is this is different now. Yeah. And so I'm seeing it as the election is getting me nervous. And maybe you're here just to calm our nerves, but I kind of wanted to know where your head was at. There's a lot of pressures happening. You know, Israel just popped off. Um, Ukraine, the house, like, like what, what's going on? What's in your head? Brother, there's a lot going on. And great. Thanks for joining. <laughs> thanks for joining the live part of the show. I'd love to have you back to kind of have a conversation about your experience in New York. And again, from Cuban and Puerto Rican uh, ancestry, I think that's a fascinating look. And to hear what's happening with family and friends down in Florida is very different. You're seeing it. You're experiencing it. It's just oh, kind yeah. of the alternate universes. Once you, once you take off from LaGuardia and land, uh, there in Miami, it's just it's a, it's a different world. It's like it's not even a different country. It's, it's just a different completely world. different Hispanic mindset. Like completely, one hundred percent. And it's it, I mean, man, we should we should do a little call and and, and have you and maybe a panel of some others, uh, so we can talk about this. So it's not just Mike Madrid saying this. They, I want people to hear like in real time that this stuff is going on. Oof. So let me see this. There's a ton going on, right? Like the world feels like it's collapsing. Let me assure you that it's not. Okay, it's not. This is, these are extraordinary times, and I think that in some ways things are going to get a lot more challenging before they begin to clarify. So look, a lot of this is all speculation, but that's kind of what we're here to do in some part. Right. Let me give you my sense of things. Let's start with the House, okay? Um, you, uh, there's a there's a uh, link here to an article I wrote it's in the SAC B. I wrote it locally because I knew that they'd print it. That my local paper will will run kind of most of my my editorial pieces, and I wanted it out there for the record. Um, so go ahead and take a quick look at that. But basically, it's it, it's basically an assessment of what is happening um, with with McCarthy, with McCarthy's upheaval, and you have to really understand why he was deposed to understand the vacuum that was created. Okay, McCarthy wanted this. Remember when when he could not put the votes together when Paul Ryan was elected Speaker. Paul Ryan was the choice because he didn't want the job, and that's extremely important to understand. Right. When you're dealing with a fractious coalition like the House GOP conference is right now, whoever doesn't want the job is the most likely to get it. I, I made this comparison, I think, on a, a somewhere. Maybe it was on a, a, a podcast. It's kind of like a papal election. If you guys don't know this, in the papal conclave, when, when a new pope is selected, by tradition, he has to deny or, or, or to turn down the job three times. Okay, and that's because you don't mm. want a pope, you don't want a pope who who wants it. You, you want a pope who doesn't want it. Like the person who doesn't want the job is the person who's the right to take that spot. And that's exactly where the Republicans find themselves. Here's the problem: you've got McCarthy, who is probably functionally functionally um, the, the 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 only person who can capably run the house at this time. And of course, he's demonstrated that he's been able to deliver barely on some 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 things that a lot of his caucus didn't like, the continuing resolution. And remember, guys, on top of all this, 40, 40 days now, 38, 39 days, the, the country is going to run out of money, right? We, we, this continuing resolution kicked the can down the road for 45 days. Then we lost the speaker and all of these things were happening. There's a cash crunch coming on top of the Israel and Ukraine spending that needs to happen. So, so these things are starting to pile up and they're very, very serious. Scalise, by all estimations, 
is, is, is the last, and I hate to use the term establishment Republican because he's not establishment in the way that I knew the establishment. The establishment guys were the reasonable guys that could actually function and make the damn house run and had confidence from everybody uh, in, the, in, in the D.C. community, which is now uh, you know referred to as the swamp. These are the bad guys, right? This is the right wing coming out and trying to destroy their own organization, their own party. Now, it's not just the institution. And that's the danger of the moment, okay? Is it going to be able to be stopped? No, it's not. And I'll get that into one second. But Scalise, remember, he had the fewest declared votes going into the secret meeting, but he came out the victor with how many votes did he have? Somebody remind me, like 119 or something like that? I don't remember. Yeah. Something like that. And then and Jordan comes out with 99. So there's there's still like 20 or so, 113 votes. Thank you. So he comes out with 113 votes. Jordan's got 99. That leaves 20-ish or so, 15, 20 votes undeclared. And the truth of the matter is getting to that last 217 is going to be extremely, extremely, extremely difficult. And here's why. When you're electing a new leader... Everybody who's a holdout is going to start asking for more and more stuff. This is what Kevin McCarthy got mm. in the Okay? So every time you give, you empower the next person exponentially greater to get to that next vote to ask for even more stuff. So at a certain point, there's not enough to give. And what's fascinating to me is even though Scalise would probably have the most votes, him getting to 217 is going to be really, really tricky. In fact, he's probably going to be stuck around the 8 to 10 vote short range, okay? Nancy Mace is basically, I mean, just called him what, you know, basically said he's, he's you know, he went to a, a white supremacist rally, David Duke mm -hmm. supporter. Like, she's probably not undecided. You probably can't buy her with a vote anymore. She's with the crazy side. She's with Jordan. Remember, Trump wants Jordan, and there's a reason why. It's not that just he likes him. There's some really bad shit between the two of them that went on with J6. And it's not the Ohio wrestling stuff is scandalous and that will come out and it'll be very damaging. But that's not the worst stuff. The worst stuff is the J6 stuff that he clearly knew about. OK, remember, this is a guy that got the Presidential Medal of Freedom in the dark of night. No ceremony. Right. That's never happened before. Yeah. Right. So there's some bad shit that's going to come out on Jordan. Jordan's best attempt at being speaker is to get in there and destroy everything that he can find. But there, it's going to come out, okay? So the, the, the Jordan supporters are getting belligerent. Matt Gates, you know, Gates will come out, okay? So the, the, the Jordan supporters are getting belligerent. Matt Gates, you know, Gates was not undecided. I don't know where his vote went, okay? But, but when Nancy Mace is coming out the way that she is, and you've got three or four members vociferously coming out against Scalise that were undecided, it's going to be, I, I don't know that Scalise can get to 218. I think he can get to a majority of the conference. He basically got there. And he's probably going to have an easier route. He's probably going to have an easier route of it than Jim Jordan does. Out of it than Jim Jordan does. But the fact that neither of them can get there tells me, and this is what Kevin McCarthy is doing, by the way. Kevin McCarthy's staying out of it. Why is he staying out of it? Because he wants to be speaker again. And that's the right move for him. All he's doing is playing de facto leader. He's putting out all these policy positions on, on Israel and what Israel should be doing. He'll be, he'll be talking about the budget stuff. You're going to keep seeing him on Fox coming out and saying, I'm not going to get involved with it. I'm not going to get involved with it. And here's why. If nobody can get to that magic number of 218, 
They're going to try to keep this family fight from going to the House floor as long as they possibly can. And that could be weeks. Not saying it is at this point, but today was the vote. Today should have been the vote on the House floor. The, the conference is nowhere even close to that, which means it's probably going to go many, 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 many days. And then what the members are going to start realizing is it can't be Scalise or Jordan. Neither of these guys can put it together. McCarthy's best realizing is it can't be Scalise or Jordan. Neither of these guys can put it together. McCarthy's best play is to let them hold their own guns to their own heads and realize we've got to get a speaker quick or it's going to completely implode and destroy the party because we can't get Israel the funding that they need, right? They're the ones out there jumping on their saying, let's fund Israel, stand with Israel. They can't even get a speaker to move the dollars and the resources to back Israel at, its, at our allies' moment of greatest weakness. There's going to become a moment of greatest weakness. There's going to become a political imperative to say we've got to restore order. And that's McCarthy's play. Can it happen? I'm going to say I'm going to give Ken McCarthy a 25% chance of that actually happening. Okay? So unless, wow. unless Jordan can be bought off with something very significant that we don't know about, the chances for Scalise getting to 218 is very, very unlikely. And here's where it gets trickier. That means... That means if, if the blast of the establishment people like a Scalise can't get there, it's going to go to a Trump person like Jordan. OK, but but there are enough of these establishment folks. There's certainly more than five or six of them that are going to be like, absolutely no way. And this is where the Ukraine stuff starts to become very important, too. OK, but but that that issue is going to become an absolutely central important wedge point in the conference and it's going to get bigger because people are going to start figuring out that you can't really be pro-Israel and anti-Hamas without being pro-Ukraine and anti-Russia. That's coming. Mm. That's the reckoning that is going to happen in MAGA world really, really quick. Interesting. Interesting. I would have not put those two things together. And you're going to start seeing a lot of it because what's going to happen is, is there's not a whole lot of evidence directly showing interesting. interesting i would have not put those two things together and you're gonna start seeing a lot of it because what's gonna happen is is there's not a whole lot of evidence directly showing iran's involvement with hamas even though i think that it's probably there but where i am absolutely convinced is there's russian money russian influence running iran's involvement with hamas even though i think that it's probably there but where i am absolutely convinced is there's Russian money, Russian influence, Russian training, right. Russian backroom channels that are supporting Hamas in this effort, okay? Either with Israel or with the, the terrorist organization directly. Right. And that's why Zelensky going to Israel is brilliant. It draws all of the global lines. Mm. You've heard here on this show, political parties are going to start becoming transnational. Those are the three. That's, the, that's where America is going to have to stand mm. up and draw the line. And watch China. China's paying attention to all of this, right? You've got the United States moving most, you know, its largest aircraft carrier, most of its naval power into the Mediterranean to protect Israel as we should. That What does that do to Taiwan? I'm not saying Taiwan is exposed, but there's going to have to be overwhelming force on the U.S. side in the South China Sea to protect Taiwan. I don't think it's any coincidence that, that the, the war starts in the coincidence. That, that the, the war starts in the Donbass. It starts in Korea, moves to the Donbass, 
and then begins a general incursion uh, into Ukraine. And then a couple of years later, a year and a half later, you see this take place with Israel. This is not surprising at all, at all, right? Iran is part of this axis, whether it's directly Donbass. It starts in Korea, moves to the Donbass, and then begins a general incursion uh, into Ukraine. And then a couple of years later, a year and a half later, you see this take place with Israel. This is not surprising at all, at all, right? Iran is part of this axis, whether it's directly or, or, or behind the scenes. So this is going to become an issue in the Republican Party because the Democratic Party largely, largely, not entirely, but largely is uniting as this pro-democracy, anti-terrorist front. The left has its own issues with with the, sure. with, with Hamas and Palestine. It yeah. just does. Yep. And I'm, I'm not going to get into that today. That could be a show for later today. But this is going to be a real cleavage point. And, and, and at some point, now, this I'm not predicting this. I'm hoping this. But I'm not predicting this. You would hope that the extremes on both sides could be who can say what Hamas did is is needs to be condemned and renounced. We stand with Israel and Republicans who can say what Russia has done is needs to be denounced and condemned. And we stand with Ukraine. Those are American values. That was American foreign policy since the end of the Cold War. Just recently, since 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 Putin started fucking with everything, has this changed in the extremes of both parties? So, Mike, that, it's. It's crazy to think, sorry to interrupt, it's crazy. No, no. A, this is why I listen to you, because I would have not put all of these things together. But B, it's crazy to think that the thing that might unite the United States would be, at this point, is foreign policy. It's not e even internal stuff, but it's the fact that we have bigger fish to fry. Brother, to you, because I would have not put all of these things together. But B, it's crazy to think that the thing that might unite the United States would be, at this point, is foreign policy. It's not e even internal stuff, but it's the fact that we have bigger fish to fry. Brother, let me say, let me say this. If you look back at the arc of our entire country, it is almost always a foreign threat that unites us. And I can go into a whole thesis as to why that is the case. Right. You said something very, very important. Without a common foreign, let me, say, let me say this. If you look back at the arc of our entire country, it is almost always a foreign threat that unites us. And I can go into a whole thesis as to why that is the case. Right. But you said something very, very important. Without a common foreign threat, the United States does not do very well. And a big part of our problems, I'm writing this in the book that comes out, a big part of our problem is the fact that America has not had a, a, a foreign threat from from Ju June, July of 1989 when the wall fell until February 2021 when the hot war broke out with Russian invasion into the Donbass. In that area, America was the global hegemon. Yes, we had wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, but they were never a direct a threat. Now, 9-11 was, was an attack on us, but the over-response allowed us to go back to sleep again. Americans without a foreign threat don't do well together. Freedom is not, the idea of freedom is not strong enough to hold people together with a common culture. And as we become a more diverse nation, a multi-religious nation, a less religious nation at the same time, a more Latino and Asian nation and less white nation, all of this diversity changes what Americanness is and the bonds that have held us together, which were loose to begin with, get even looser. So what happens? We start to turn on each other. 
That's the story of the last 20 years. The shit we argue about as Americans is embarrassing. We fight about trans stuff and critical race theory and Mr. Potato Head sexuality. Like these things get us really hopped up and pissed off because we've got nothing else to fight about. Part of the story, part of the American story, when we look back at this season, at this really troubling time, is to recognize that without serious stuff to deal with, the American people don't do well and we turn on ourselves. So, yes, you have an excellent point. Excellent point in that, look, in the same way that it took Russia invading Ukraine to get NATO shit back together and start saying we're relevant, we've got a reason to be here, and we've got a common understanding that we need to be focused on, that could be happening domestically at least for a while here in the United States with Israel. And that's why I want you to step back. As scary as it looks, and it is scary, there's some bad shit going on. The Western world is uniting in a way that it hasn't since the Second World War. It's very important to realize that out of this human tragedy, out of these atrocities, the Western world is getting its shit together and realizing, oh, yeah, this is why we formed these alliances in the first place is because without us, these bad actors do really horrible and bad things. Not to suggest that we haven't done horrible and bad things because we have, but at least it's 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 like getting scared straight and throwing a cold glass of water in our face and saying, maybe fighting over what color your M&Ms are is not that big of a freaking deal, America. Maybe you need to start focusing on shit that is real. And I say that because that's a real thing on Fox News, right? Is 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 which which M&M colors are, are gay or straight. It's just absurd. But without that common threat, without that common enemy, America doesn't do terribly well. The, so, the silver lining I'm seeing is is we are starting to see some unity uh, domestically, at least for the moment, and in the Western world. So, Mike, I know you have other people in the line. My last question yeah. as I'm listening to you. Yeah. How do you think that fares with the Republican overarching message of America first at this moment? Do you think that it doesn't do well for them when or or, or like are they going to is, is a political strategist thinking, how do we wrap this up into America first? Because now we're thinking, OK, we need to unite so that we can fight these common enemies because they're looking out for us. Right. Because I, I didn't even think about that. Do you well, think it plays thing, well I, or I, do you think it does like, it? I'm the strategist for the America first guys, if I was Republican advisor, what would I be doing? Yeah. Or how do we beat and them? would that scare you? <laughs> uh, look, if, I, if I'm – the America first stuff get, takes root uh, really well when there's foreign stuff that doesn't involve us. Oh, that's I, true. The, America has been kind of cradled because we've had these two oceans that have protected us. So much of our success has been not a function of just of our values, which I believe is a huge part of it, but it's also just simple geography. We've got this incredible piece of land that has all this energy and all this agriculture and all this, uh, you, you know, uh, raw materials and, and, and gold and silver and copper. It's like the United States, we, we've got this bounty, but mainly we've been protected by these massive oceans. So attacking right. the United States has been very, very expensive. So that doesn't happen. I say that because... It's easy to be an isolationist if you're American. It's really hard if you're European and you've got three other countries that you've been fighting with for 2,000 years all mm. over your border. You can't just be like, oh, you guys go fight it out, right? Like that's that's Americanism kind of copping out. America, The world needs American leadership right now. We, they need America to fill that void. I just retweeted something with Dan Crenshaw on Fox News, right? If, if we're not, if we vacate that spot, bad shit happens. To yep. innocent people. 
And that's unfortunate, but that's just the way it is. And I'm not saying we do everything right because we don't. We've got our own long, dirty mm -hmm. laundry list of shit that we've done. But American leadership matters. It's important. So um, if I'm an America firster and this is taking root, you know, with the whole the, the Trumpers and stuff, they were, it was going great, right? They're cooking with gas with all of this stuff up until two things happen, right? They love, they love, they love to see America fail on the global stage. It's why they made such a big, big racket about the Afghan pullout, which Trump set the deadline for. But of course, they ignore that and they focus on the you know shots right. of the airplane taking off and, and, and all the arms that were left behind. Okay, fine. But they never credit Joe Biden for organizing the NATO coalition against the, the number one global threat and supporting Ukraine and Ukraine lasting longer than 72 hours when everybody thought they were going to roll all over them. That's not the case. Ukraine's going to win this war and they're going to do it because the United States is backing them and supporting them along with our NATO allies. Okay, that will happen. It's a matter of time. The question is how long? Here's where it gets problematic for the American firsters. They have also completely made their bed with Israel as they should have. For the record, I'm a huge supporter of Israel. I've done work for the American Jewish Committee. Uh, I've I, I polled for them. I've done a lot of work uh, uh, for, for the AJC, and I, and I believe Israel has a right to exist. I think we're a better world for Israel existing. We can get into a two-state solution, which I also support, and, and what's going to happen because it's going to be an absolutely horrible week as a human being. Some really bad shit's going to happen to innocent people, and I hate that fact, but I also understand the politics of it, and I just hate the right. fact that that's where we're at, but that's what's going to happen. This is problematic for MAGA, and here's why. It's exactly what I said is the if you all roads back, lead back to, to Vladimir Putin. Without yeah. Putin, this would not have happened. And this is going to become clear over the coming weeks. This is not the traditional fight between Iran funding Hamas or Hezbollah or whoever, whatever terrorist organization. This is not the standard Arab-Jewish conflict. This was organized. It was funded. These people were trained. The intelligence breaches are, are breathtaking. If you've ever been to Gaza, and I've been to Gaza, you, you, a butterfly can't fly over that fence without 15 Israeli defense systems going off. Yeah, that's what my friend said. The way that this happened just doesn't add up. It just doesn't. And then we're going to learn a hell of a lot more in the coming days, but here's what I guarantee we are going to find out. There's an alliance between Russia, Russian-funded money. Maybe it's through Wagner, which has been you know all over that part of the world, training people in Africa, training troops, supporting these uh, extremist uh, organizations. And we're going to find out in real time, real quick, what that connection was and what it means. And if there was involvement, again, we are going to find out what that is. People are going to really understand very quickly, the vast majority of Americans, the nexus between this global fight and this global conflict that we're in, which is you, if you support Ukraine, you support Israel. And if you support Ukraine and Israel, you support Taiwan because it's that axis, China, Iran, and Russia, which is fomenting most of this global terror. They all have an interest in seeing the Western alliance dissolve, a weakening America, and they are actively engaged in the pursuit of undermining this country. This is not new. This didn't begin even in 2014 when Russia rolled in Crimea. This has been going on for well over a decade, okay? The Russians fucked with our elections. They're going to fuck with them again. So are the Iranians. So are the Chinese. Why does it keep coming back to those three players? Because they're the ones that have a vested interest in seeing 
America brought down, the Western coalition dissolved, and they want to advance their interests in part because all three of those dictatorships, whether it's the Mullah in Iran, whether it's Xi Jinping in China, or whether it's Vladimir Putin, they're all standing on weak economies with weak support bases amongst their own people, and expansion is their only chance to survive and maintain power. And that's what I think at least is going on. So I appreciate mm-hmm. the question, my brother. Andrew. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. Thank you for coming in and uh, asking such great questions. Andrew, you're up. My guy, Andrew, from Man Down Under. Hey, Mark. How are you? Easy questions for me tonight, Andrew. They're tough ones. Oh, shut up. You get hard questions from me. Um, So um, here's here's the 30,000-foot view question, um, stepping back from all all the noise. Does, um, in your opinion, does Gavin Newsom know something that we don't? And why is he doing what he's doing? Gavin? About about anything specific or just in general? Is he running a, a shadow primary that he hasn't told anyone about? Uh, good, good question. Uh, I, I will say this with a high degree of certainty from very, very close relationships I have in that world. No, he's not. He's not running a shadow primary but what I do think he is uh, doing is, is filling a very significant void. And let me tell you what that is. He's, he's doing kind of what the Lincoln Project did in 2020, is he's running the offense on these cultural issues. And, and notice, he's, he's not really talking about the economy at all. He's talking about racial slash cultural issues that one animates the democratic base that the base wants to hear. They want to hear a fight. They want somebody to be the champion of their cause, to take up the sword and take up the shield from the sand in the arena and walk out to all these crazy Republicans that are you know, more than happy to go to war on this stuff and show them how to fight and win, by the way. Here's the, the thing about Gavin Newsom is he wins on cultural issues. I, I don't know if a moderator can look for the for the uh, article I ran in the LA Times earlier this year about Gavin uh, winning, teaching Democrats how to win the cultural wars. This is very significant change. And I think it feels like he's running a shadow primary because Gavin Newsom is fighting a different fight than everybody else is in the Democratic Party. Let me spend a little bit more time on that. Well, first, let, let me finish that first thought. This allows Joe Biden to be presidential and deal with stuff like Israel rather than have to defend things like gay marriage or LGBTQ rights because they're important. They're important to the base, but they're also not what the president of the United States should be worried about right now when he's got a war in Ukraine and probably a war in the Middle East that we're going to have to be involved in as well, right? Allow him to be presidential and go slug it out with Ron DeSantis and Sean Hannity on Fox News in Georgia and look, make the Republicans, just by having the fight, suckering them into the fight, look like the small, petty men that they are. That's, that's the tactical brilliance. And look, I'm not a particularly big Gavin Newsom fan, especially on the policy side. As many of you know, or maybe you don't know, I ran the primary campaign for Mayor Antonio Villaraigosa of Los Angeles against Gavin Newsom because I thought Gavin Newsom was far too more progressive. We needed a middle-class agenda, a blue-collar, working man's agenda from the Latino community because that's a voice we do not have in California. Antonio is working for Gavin now. I'm great friends with some of his top advisors. There's no personal animus. 
I will tell Gavin publicly, as I you'll see in the LA Times, that's going to be posted up here in just a bit in the chat box, when he's doing a good job. I'm also not afraid to say he's doing a bad job. But what I am saying is, no, he's not running against Joe Biden. No, I don't think he's undercutting or undermining Joe Biden. He's actually doing a lot of great work uh, in coordination with the Biden White House. I know that for a fact, firsthand account fact. But what I do believe is that he is fighting a fight that the Democrats have been reluctant to engage because they think they can't win. So let me finish that, the answer to, to, to this long parable with this one, Andrew, because it's very important. Yep. There's an inside the beltway thinking that the, the, the redeemers of the Democratic Party that are going to the future of the Democratic Party are people like Gretchen Whitmer, Amy Klobuchar, Tim Ryan, Josh Shapiro. They're not. Let me, let, me, let me just say it again. The future of the Democratic Party is not in the Rust Belt. The, those blue-collar working men, you know, diner eating, you know, Trump, Obama to Trump voters, yep. those people are gone. They're not with you, and they're not coming back. And most importantly, you don't need them. The problem you have, Democrats, is you're losing U.S.-born, Hispanic, blue-collar Hispanic voters, that's where your problem is. Get the hell out of the diners in Ohio. Leave the ballparks and bowling alleys of Pennsylvania. Get out of Michigan. That's not where you're going to win. You're not going to win those voters. Or you've already got them. Michigan is much more blue than it is red. By the way, so is Pennsylvania. But you're not going to win Ohio. You're not going to win that white working class blue-collar, rust-belt, white dude who's over 55, 60 years old. You're not. You need to be far more worried about losing the 25, 28, 29, 30-year-old Hispanic guy who's working on the construction site down in New Mexico or Arizona in Phoenix, Maricopa County, or increasingly in Gwinnett and DeKalb County in Georgia. That's the blue-collar worker you need to be focused on. I get it. These are all old white guys. And if you don't think the Democratic Party is made up of old old white guys, you're wrong. 95% of their political consultants, 95%, especially at the highest level, it's a, a bunch of old white dudes who think like a bunch of old white dudes. That's <laughs> not the future of the Democratic Party. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. I've got one more question, Mike. Um, yeah. Can you, can you speak to voters' intentions of the next generation of kids who, you know, they were nine, 10, 11 years old when, when the upheaval of 15, 16 started. Um, they've grown up with uh, school violence, school shooting, now the um, row reversal. Um, is that creating a, 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 a generation of blue voters that are going to wash over American politics? Uh, blue voters as it currently stands. But one thing, the short answer is, um, well, that's not a short answer. It's a short-term answer and a long-term answer. In the short term, yeah, that stands to reason for, for, for sure. In fact, this Gen Z group is demonstrably more, uh, I don't want to say progressive, they're demonstrably more anti-Republican than any generation of 18 to 25-year-olds going back to when we allowed 18-year-olds to vote back in the mid-late 1960s, I think, or maybe it was the early 70s. Someone may have to you know, clarify when that happened. But even then, during the Vietnam War, which is why we lowered the voting age from 21 to 18, was because we were sending soldiers to war that couldn't vote, didn't make a hell of a lot of sense, 
So we, we took an amendment, we dropped it to 18. The 18 to 25 year old vote has always been a democratic vote, but by varying margins, okay? And politicization, your point really mattered. Look, I became an 18 year old Republican in 1989 ish. Yeah, November of 89. I, I grew up during the Reagan era. It was it was more young people were Republicans than Democrats in my time. Okay, like it was being Republican was a cool thing. I know that was a long damn time ago because now it's the exact opposite. Not that it's cool to be a Democrat, but it is embarrassing to be a Republican if you're 18 to 25 years old. Like it's shameful. Like that's something you don't say publicly. Okay, and and it's because of the values that the party is doubling down on with these old white guys, which is why I don't get what the Democrats are doing. It's like you're not going to get enough of those folks back by by doubling down on those old white dude values that want America to go back to something that it never was. You should quadruple and quintuple down with this new generation of Americans who are showing 80 percent of them are going to vote for you. So the, the long term answer is this. The Democratic Party is going to change. It's going to change a lot in the next 10 years. I've always always said this, and I believe it now more than ever. The Republican Party is not going to change. It's not. It needs to more than the Democrats to become relevant, but it's not. It's going to keep doubling down on its demographic because they're only talking to old white dudes at this point and Latinos that want to be like those old white dudes. But as they keep doing that and as that population shrinks, it loses its ability to speak or have voices beyond that demographic. So it gets smaller and more intense and more hyper-focused on less and less relevant things. That's what we're seeing in the House speakership vote. That's what Donald Trump was. That's what the Republican Party has become. The Democratic Party is very different. There are two main pillars of the Democratic Party, and they're very different. The first are white, college-educated progressives. This is kind of the Gavin Newsom folks. And let me break this to you folks. These voters are just as eyeballs deep in the culture war as are the Republicans, okay? It's why Gavin only talks about culture war issues. Gay marriage, legalization of marijuana, trans issues, you know, border issues, gun control, right? They're not talking about marginal tax rates or, or investments in opportunity zones or, or, or you know, how we're going to get the working class back to work. The working class is seeing this. White college-educated progressives run the party overwhelmingly. I don't care. Don't, don't throw Hakeem Jeffries at me, and don't throw Kamala Harris. Okay, the party, the party elite is ninety-five percent white. Okay, now the voting base, the fastest-growing part of the voting base, are black and brown people, primarily brown people, and they are not of the same culture and have absolutely nothing in common with the elites of their party economically, almost nothing. In fact, they're increasingly becoming antagonistic, which, as I've explained, is, 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 it explains why this rightward shift is happening. The Democratic Party is losing working class voters to the Republicans. The Republicans are losing college-educated voters to the Democrats. There are currently more white college-educated suburban women defecting to the Republicans at this moment in time than there are U.S.-born non-college-educated Latinos moving towards the Republicans. But it's getting closer every election cycle, and the Democrats are making a mistake by not adopting a working-class agenda. The reason why they haven't, there aren't any more FDR you know, Democrats like my parents were anymore. They're dead. They're dying. 
You know, the Dianne Feinsteins were ridiculed and pushed and, and run out of here because they were corporate Democrats. They weren't left enough. So, you know, and, and look, I know LaFonza Butler, okay? Great woman, really impressive. She's not Dianne Feinstein, okay? This, these are not equivalent people politically. Mm-hmm. She is more emblematic of where the Democratic Party is going, where she's going. And we, we can talk about that Senate race, but she's going to win that Senate race if she decides to win, to run. But she, she is where the Democratic Party is going, not what it has been. And that, that fight, that conflict is going to dramatically change the coalitions. The only thing that is keeping the Republican Party alive is people fleeing the Democratic Party because it has completely uh, abdicated its space on the field of economics. Yeah. Okay. Do you, so Fair enough? I, yeah. And do you think those young people are motivated to vote 24 or not? Say that again? Do you think those young people are going to be, are going to be motivated yeah. to vote in 2024 yeah. or not? Yeah, yeah. This idea that no one's going to show up and vote is bullshit. Look, we're, we, are in, we are in a period of extended high turnout because people understand that the stakes are very real and they're very high. I'm not saying they're going to show up and vote because they love Joe Biden because they don't. No. They're going to show up and vote because they're scared shitless of Donald Trump. There, there was a w, WPA polling, and I use Wilson Public Affairs polling all the time. They're polling for Ron DeSantis right now, too. So you got to take it with a grain of salt. But just if you look this up on Twitter or X or threads, they yeah. just put out some polling results that show Biden beats Trump in a general election. They're saying DeSantis beats him marginally. I don't believe that because I believe that the negative on DeSantis hasn't been run with general election voters yet. Democrats and independents don't know who the hell this guy is. People that don't care or don't pay attention don't know who Ron DeSantis is. They just don't. But they know who Donald Trump is, and they don't like him. And Trump's image is in his brand is going to get weaker and weaker and weaker, uh, at least amongst the electorate. I don't think that there will be a broad defection. But I do believe that the splintering in the House, this is really important, the splintering that is taking place in the House is emblematic of what's going to happen when Donald Trump loses. When Donald Trump loses in 2024, there is going to be a cleavage that is the size of the Scalise-Jordan faction in the Republican Party because they're going to completely go to war and blame each other entirely. Scalise's people have the money. Trump's people have the votes, at least the majority in the Republican Party, which is shrinking. And that is going to be one hell of a holy war, a civil war. And so that's why I am optimistic. And like I said, as, as scary as the 2020 election race was for me and for all of us, I mean, I, had a high, I knew we were going to win. I had a high degree of confidence we were going to win. You heard me saying that. The, the race, the election that scared me the most was 2022, the midterms, because uh, you knew Republicans were going to do well. I didn't think Democrats had the message. Republicans did do well in terms of turnout, but they defected. They were losing all those voters that I was just talking about, all those college-educated women, and very important, and Andrew, to your point, high Gen Z turnout. Not as high as it should have been. Not It was much lower than every other age cohort, but they're young people, so you expect that. It only gets stronger. And as I've, I've said, demographically, we are in a demographic foot race right now between young people turning 18, of which there are 10,000 every day, and old people dying. And in America, 7,500 people die, most of them old, not all of them, but most of them over 65. So every day that goes by, this is a very macabre way of looking at it, but demographically <laughs> part of this, folks. Every day that you wake up is a better day for democracy. 
Because the only age group that Donald Trump won a majority of, the only age group was 65 plus voters. They're dying at 7,000 a day. Not all of them in Georgia, Arizona, Wisconsin, North Carolina, but they're 7,500 a day. And 10,000 new 18 year olds are coming online every day. So simple math says 80% of those 10,000 that turn 18 every day are voting for the Democrat. That's the way it breaks. About 55% of the people that are dying every day, most of them 65 and older, are Republicans. So you, you start to do the math over four yeah, yeah, years, yeah, yeah, yeah. a bigger trend. So democracy is on the docket for 24, huh? This is the one. This is the big one. Well, I'm like, I, I you know, this fight, the, you know, the Lincoln Project fight I signed up for to do this nationally, you know, I was saying then this is not just about one race. This is about a decade. And it, it will be three. Every race gets easier from here on out. Uh, it doesn't mean this is going away. The crazies are going to get crazier, folks. Mm. They're going to get crazier, mm. but that doesn't mean that they're going to win elections. It's harder. It's going to be harder for Donald Trump to win in 2024 than it was in 2020. He lost in 2020, and he didn't do particularly well in 2016. So the Republicans are, you know, they they made a deal with the, the demographic devil. They've doubled, tripled, quadrupled, quintupled down with old white guys. That's the fastest dying demographic in America. And if it wasn't for U.S. born Hispanic Latinos, blue collar, you know, fit, fit, you know, filling that void somewhat. They would be in deep, deep, deep trouble. And I, ultimately, they will be if they don't adjust. But again, this is a long way of saying, Andrew, both parties will make adjustments. The Democratic Party, the, the real question is, can the Democratic Party get back a little bit to its working class roots? It's not a priority for its leadership. They don't care about it. And if they could, they imagine, let me, let me wrap up with this. because Again, I'm going on too long. But yep. imagine this. Imagine what 2020 and 2022 would have looked like if the Democrats had their traditional share of the Latino vote, they would have crushed Trump. They would have beat him, you know, they would certainly come close in Florida. They would have beat him in Florida, probably, in two, in 2020. They would have won North Carolina, okay? In the 2022 midterms, the Democrats would still be in the majority. Let me just put it that way. The Democrats would be in the majority if they just had 2018 midterm numbers. But they're not, and they're in denial about it. And they keep saying it's not happening. Of course it's fucking happening. It's math. Look at it. Why are you losing the proof that you're losing in these places? Uh, I love I love it when you I love it when you add a bit of French to the conversation. Sorry, I know, I, yeah. I, I yeah. love it. No, no, it's a family show. I gotta uh, no, 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 I love it. As an Australian, I love it. I love it. Thanks, mate. Thanks for your time, Mike. Good to see you again, brother. We'll let you know where we're going to be at next time we do this, okay? Appreciate it. Cheers. Thank you. Victor, you're up. Sorry it took so long. Thanks for being patient. No, it's okay, Mike. Uh, so uh, I have uh, a couple of questions in regard to McCarthy and the California GOP. Uh, yeah. First, first off, uh, since back back when uh, McCarthy was uh, busy trying to get the votes to become speaker back in January, you said that the worst thing that could happen to him was if he actually succeeded. And he did, and this happened. And yeah, he thumbs up. I was right, right? That yeah. Was <laughs> yeah, that was the thing. I don't think he wanted to go in history like this. The first speaker no. ousted. It's bad. No. So uh, what struck me the most about that is that he didn't seem to tr really try to save his speakership. 
Like he didn't try to reach out to Democrats or anything because they were the only people that could save him. Even if he just got like five or six Democrats on board, instead yeah. he went on the next day after the uh, the sh- shutout vote and and threw them under the bus. He just didn't try. Just what was he thinking? Well, let me let me explain what happened with Kevin because again, we all knew like I like I said is when he cut that deal with a small, thin majority, knowing that he had a handful of people who personally hated him no matter what, and then giving up all the uh, the power of the motion to vacate. Uh, he knew his numbers, you know, he, he knew that he was probably not going to survive long as speaker because anybody could tell you that. Now, I also wouldn't say that if I were in his same position, I wouldn't do the same thing because everybody in that caucus wants to be speaker. They're all there for power. That's why they run for office in the first place. And they all, this is the fascinating thing about politicians on both sides of the aisle. They all think they're uniquely positioned to fix it. Like there's, I guarantee, I guarantee you this, mark my words on this. There are 35 or 40 people in that House GOP conference today, right now, who think that they should be speaker and are lining up their, their plan B's, plan C's and plan D's in the eventuality that Scalise and Jordan both can't get there. I guarantee you that they're all looking in the mirror and shaving or brushing their teeth or doing their hair, whatever they're doing. And they're all looking at the next speaker and saying, I know that I could do it if I could just get so-and-so support and so-and-so support and so-and-so support. That's how politicians think. Okay. So that's first. The second is the most, one of the most pathetic things. I've seen a lot of pathetic things coming out of the House GOP conference lately, but one of them was when they blamed the Democrats for not saving them. Okay. Hakeem Jeffries, this is a test of his leadership too. Okay. He's got to make sure that his caucus is disciplined and supports him by not bailing because it would not be good to have Democrats supporting a House speaker without the uniformity of the entire caucus. There's a whole lot of reasons as to why. We can spend more time on that if you want to, but just know that. Also, the only thing worse than that, and people need to quit deluding themselves, Hakeem Jeffries does not want to be speaker if five or six voters vote for him to become speaker. That would be the worst possible thing for the Democrats and for Hakeem Jeffries personally. That is the worst scenario. It sounds good. It's not. It's terrible, okay? The last thing you want is the leader of the Democratic Party beholden to the demands of five Republicans and without with them changing their mind at any time could dump him because if he, were, if he was dumb enough to make that deal, it shows you he's not smart enough to be the Speaker of the House or know how to manage the politics. The best case scenario is if you could get a reasonable Republican, whatever that means, Fred Upton, Don Bacon, one of these guys that isn't an election denier, isn't a white nationalist. I know the bar is really low nowadays. And have the entire Democratic conference support him along with five or six other Republicans to go up and have one of those Republicans be a Republican speaker. Now, the, the reason why this would be brilliant is, is because this would create a massive civil war in the Republican Party. Okay? The reason why it won't happen is because there's no Republican dumb enough to do that because it would mean not just the end of their political career, it might mean the end of their life. And I'm not kidding by, by the amount of upheaval that would happen. And certainly 
the worst thing that the only thing worse than the one Republican going up and doing that would be the five or six other Republicans that don't have the power of the speakership that put those votes on the line too. All of their careers would be over. Let's stop pretending that the Democrats would do it too. This country over party stuff is equally as bad in the, in the Democratic Party as it is in the Republican Party. These guys are all acting rationally, okay? So th that's not going to happen. So, we, so where does that leave us? It leaves us where I started this conversation by saying the speaker, the most likely speaker is somebody who's a backbencher in the Republican caucus that doesn't want it, that doesn't want it, that hasn't been playing politics this whole time, doesn't have that many enemies, and they're just going, you know, we can't get this shit done. we got to move money to Israel now. The whole world is making us look embarrassing. Our approval ratings are sinking. Republican governors are starting to say, get your shit together. Fox News is like, what the hell is going on? Donald Trump keeps playing politics and dealing with his fraud charges. And, oh, by the way, Georgia's you know, trial is going on right now. They're asking Ronna McDaniel to testify. I mean, this shit's going to get messy. Messy. And if they if they if the government shuts down while this Republican incompetence is occurring, it's going to have real time economic impacts. It's going to hurt our allies abroad, but it will be devastating, devastating to the Republicans. And there's panic right now. You can see it by the way that they're behaving and by the way that they're they're postulating publicly. Um, and again, I don't want to spend too much time on this because we're already at an hour. We'll keep going. And especially thank you for your patience, everybody that's been in the queue. But no, if you saw Tom McClintock's statement, they're trying to basically say, you know, once we vote as a majority, everybody has to vote with everybody else or we'll kick you out of the conference. Like that is antithetical to the entire concept of representative government. It's just nuts. But that's where they're at. This is this is the animal that they created. And now it's eating them and they don't know what to do about it. So it's hard to be gleeful. Although there's a little bit of glee to be had because the, the impacts are really, really devastating and the dysfunction could harm our allies. It's certainly hurting our country and the rest of the world is looking at us going, these guys are freaking dysfunctional. Like they can't, they can't, they can't spend money, not just on Ukraine or Israel, which are big enough. In, in 38 days, we're going to run out of cash and they can't figure out who's going to lead their party. Like it's. It, it's, it's, it's a sign of weakness, and our enemies are watching, and they're going to be taking advantage of this. And I also, you know, look, I'm not suggesting that that was a rationale for, for the Hamas incursion, but damn if it didn't help them out. Damn if it didn't help them out, right? The United States looks inept. It's like, it's like a, a, a big Godzilla that can't st stop stepping on its own feet, and falling over and, and face planting. How's that for an image? Um, so, you know, that's, that's I, again, that's a large part of what we're dealing with. And I don't think that it's going to get um, better before, it's going to get worse in the house before it gets better. Somebody asked me the question earlier today, is it possible that they could never choose a speaker? And the answer is, I, it's possible. It's highly unlikely. The most likely scenario is if they don't get it done in the next 48 hours, it's probably going to go on a, another week to 10 days. If it goes on beyond 10 days, guys, the country's in trouble. Because if, if it goes on 10 days, we're not going to be able to, to, to come up with a, a, a continuing resolution to spend money to keep the government from shutting down. So, yeah, I mean, you got to remember, like, 
Ukraine funding is extraordinarily important. You all know how I feel about that. Getting Israel the funds and help it needs, if it needs any at the moment, is extremely important. But that's not anywhere near as big as getting the government funding and preventing us from shutting down. What if we shut down and there's no speaker? I mean, like this shit's real. This has real life impact. So anyway, um, can you guys can you guys see me? Or is the video? No, I can see you. Can I can see you just fine. Okay. Now, okay. Now I just got a little pixelated, but I think it's going to come back soon. Sorry, it's choking a little bit. Again, I'm hoping that when we make this change to another platform, which we will by next week, we'll alert everybody both here on the Colin app, all the subscribers, thanks for supporting the show. But again, on my Twitter X account and on Threads and Mastodon, we'll be doing a big promotion when we when we figure out exactly where we're going to relocate to. But Victor, thank you very very much yeah, for the question. Yeah, I, I had one more question. Of, okay. Yeah, it's. it's uh, so uh, Kevin McCarthy was like, as you said, was one of the things that uh, made the California GOP still relevant, even though it's not looking so good over there. Uh, what happens to them now that he's basically gone? What happens to Kevin McCarthy? No, what happens to the California GOP? Yeah, this, that yeah, this hasn't been written. I'm, I'm guessing you're probably Californian. Look, this Kevin McCarthy was the last lifeline for any meaningful funding of the Republican Party. And I spoke to some reporters about this uh, nationally because everybody was concerned, like, what did McCarthy is a fundraising machine. And more than any other politician, I've worked with thousands of them in 30 years. And I know Kevin and have worked with him. Um, Kevin McCarthy has an uncanny ability to understand voter sentiment. And he is by far, by far, by far the best politician at understanding how campaigns work. Most of them don't. We all think they do because they got elected. It wasn't them, it's their political consultants that got them elected. Kevin McCarthy understands campaigns and he understands candidate recruitment and he understands when a candidate is doing well or not. This whole program called Young Guns, you've all seen the book cover of Young Guns with yeah. Eric Cantor and Paul Ryan and, and McCarthy. Uh, Young Guns is the name of the, of the actual program nationwide now that all Republican candidates running for Congress go through that hit these metrics, fundraising, volunteers, doors knock, that actually provide metrics for campaigns. So Kevin is, is, is the best politician I've ever worked with in 30 years that understands campaigns. He's not going to just quietly go away, but he has lost the ability to raise the significant amounts of money for the California Republican Party as it stands. Is that going to hurt Mike Garcia? Is that going to hurt John Duarte? Is that going to hurt Michelle Steele? You know, the top three uh, Republicans in trouble in California? No, it's not going to hurt them. They're going to have all the money that they need. Top funded, top targeted campaigns get the money, however they need to get it. I've never been on a top targeted campaign where those campaigns did not get the money. But what is going to hurt is the rest of the state, as weak as it is in California, is going to get a lot weaker. And so... The California Republican Party as an institution lost a lot, a lot, a lot uh, in this last week. Okay. Um, Thanks okay, so right. much. Thanks, Mike. You, you bet. Lisa, you're on stage. Sorry it took so long, but thank you for being um, patient. Go ahead and unmute. She might have fallen asleep because I was talking so long. Oh, she's gone, I think. That's going to make M our next caller. M, welcome back to the show. What's what's on your mind? Hi, Mike. Thank you so much for making yourself available again. It's 
such a privilege to get to talk to you. And I'm really glad I listened to you on the um, talking, what was it? Talking politics without politics and religion, that podcast. Yeah, it was a great, great podcast with my friend Corey Nathan. If you're, if you're looking for another great podcast, uh, Corey Nathan does a good show. I've been on the show, I think, two or three times now. Um, and we had, we had a great episode, this last episode. It's worth a listen, Absolutely. don't you think? Really. I, actually, I listened to you on four different podcasts. <laughs> I listened to you with Jennifer Horn, wow. with Politicology, with, was it Capital Weekly or something? A California? Yeah, Capital Weekly And then the show. Talking Politics. Yeah. But the thing that was interesting is just hearing... Like I really did learn something new, a different perspective in each of those different um, platforms. So that was really interesting. And I'm especially glad that you were able to get a break and do your pilgrimage time this summer. Yeah, so I'll talk about that a little bit more too as things get down the road, actually have gone to Europe uh, twice to go on this pilgrimage to these uh, cathedrals dedicated to St. Michael over the course of the past year. You know, curiously, I'll speak about this a little bit. There's two more cathedrals I need to go to. One is in Greece in Rhodes, the other one is in uh, Mount Carmel in Haifa in, in oh, Israel. Wow. So probably not going to happen for a little bit of time now. But Wow, I hope it was refreshing for you. I really do, especially with your book and all that. So thank you. Thank you. Um, my question is, one of the things I appreciate about the way that you explain things is I consider what you do more play-by-play -play than color commentary. Like there's a lot of people oh, who give okay. opinions. But I really feel like you explain things like this is why it's happening and this is the motivation for it. Here's the possible outcomes. My question is, one of my questions is, um, are the politicians equally strategic? It kind of touches on what you just said about people don't, people get elected without understanding campaigns. Do people, mm -hmm. you know, politicians, some of them seem so stupid. Um, yeah. Are they, are they acting with an awareness of the strategy that you're explaining or is it just how it plays out? You know, that's a good question. Um, look, I think everybody in this business, well, let me, let, me, let me broaden this. One of the toughest parts about working in politics, especially being doing what I do and kind of sharing my thoughts with the world is politics is one of those things where everybody has an opinion on it. In some ways, they're equally valid because we all get one vote. But, but everybody kind of views themselves as somewhat of an expert on it. Not everyone, but a lot of people do. So it's kind of like, what, you know, Mike, how do you talk with such authority? And it's just, I've just been, I've been literally running campaigns at every level of government, every level of government for 30 years. So that's, that's what I bring that expertise to. I still only get one vote. And I'm not always right on, on anything, on any given Tuesday, as we say in the business. It, it, you know, I, 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 I'm wrong, it's, it's, you know, not as much as I guess a lot of people are. But what I will say is this. I think every politician believes that they're being strategic, but being strategic doesn't lead you to the same outcomes, right? It's the way you approach it and what might be in your own best interest. Nancy Mays, for example, I can't figure out what the hell she's doing. <laughs> like in the last 48 hours, like, right? Like, first of all, she has lost so much in the last 48 hours. It's kind of unfathomable. She, let's talk about her for just a second, mm -hmm. okay? Yes. Let's just use her as a case study here. Nancy Mace beat a Trump-endorsed candidate in her reelect. She was kind of this rising star. Then she backed off of Trump. Trump ran somebody against her. She wins that primary. Her stock basically goes through the roof, mm -hmm. right? And she, she should be this up-and-comer. Then what she does is she votes to unseat McCarthy, which is nuts. And let me, let me say why. They didn't need her vote to do that. Just, mm -hmm. just 
vote absent or stay out of it, mm -hmm. right? They already had enough votes. Why would you go up and create a firestorm against you that is completely unnecessary? So, so she does that. She makes what I think is a political mistake, bad calculus. She goes up on the vote, starts getting massive blowback. Then what does she do? She goes with Matt Gates, who she has previously said horrible things mm -hmm. about, to Steve Bannon's show. She voted to, 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 to bring the feds down on Steve Bannon. He calls her out on the show. Like, she's not making any friends here, mm -hmm. right? This is all within 24 hours. And, and then what does she do yesterday? She wears this Scarlet A, right, from the Scarlet, the Hester Prynne Scarlet Letter novel, making herself look like a damn fool, completely pissing off everybody in the conference because she's basically slamming all of them, making more enemies. And then today she goes on the show and announces that she will never vote for Steve Scalise, who's got the most votes in the conference because he, you know, for she's right, but you know, now's not the time to be right. <laughs> now's the time to be right. She goes and says, I'm not gonna vote for him because he was he's a white supremacist who said he was David Duke without the baggage. Like that's just crazy talk. She's just dropping atomic bombs on the guy who just got the most votes out of the House conference. And then she says, I'm with Jordan. So it, it, yeah, I thought Marjorie Taylor Greene was batshit crazy, and she is. And then Lauren Boebert showed me a whole new level of madness. And then now Nancy Mace is like <laughs> the new chair of the crazy caucus. Like, I, I don't get it. None of that made sense. Does she think she's being strategic? I guarantee you she does, 100%. She thinks that what she's doing is brilliant and right and all of that. So I don't know. I mean, it's a tough question. She, do I think she's being strategic? No, I think she's being an idiot. <laughs> okay. I, that yeah, helpful? that is helpful. I just am so curious because when you explain it, it often just seems very predict, not predictable, like common, but like, okay, this happened. So then this is going to happen. This option opened. So this option closed. And just wondering how aware people are when they're making those decisions. I guess I put it this way, like I'm, um, it's like people say never be your own lawyer, mm -hmm. right? Because you, the lawyer doesn't make the right decisions and you can't think strategically. Like it's very easy for me to, uh, I would never run my own campaign. First, I would never run for office. <laughs> but I, I, you know, when you, uh, my job is to, is to see things clinically and, and to act without emotion and get my client's advantage. And so when I, when I do that, the roadmap is very clear for me. Would I be doing that if I were the one and people are coming after me and they needed my vote and I gave my word or I felt this way about this or that? Probably not. I would be the worst politician in America, like the worst, <laughs> the worst, because I just I don't I don't relate to individuals as well as I do to, to voter groups and data. Mm -hmm. So I just I'm not cut out for the, the retail politics of it. Some people are very good at it. Kevin McCarthy is quite good at it. I mean, he's. He's great at it. I, I'm not. I never was. Uh, I love politics, but I don't love retail politics. And so I would be a terrible politician, uh, a, a terrible elected official. I'm the worst candidate. Like, I just would not be good at it. But I'm pretty good at political consulting because I can see the plays. And as long as I'm not personally invested in it, I can be unemotional and clinical about the decisions and the advice that I give. That makes sense. Speaking of people who are not great with the glad handing, is uh, Ron DeSantis goes off into the dark night somewhere? <laughs> Are we stuck with him in Florida forever? Do we get Matt Gates instead? 
I don't know. It's too early to see, but I mean, DeSantis is doing a lot of damage to himself. Um, and I said it on the show, DeSantis should have, should have never run. He should have gone all the way up to the ledge and then said, I'm supporting Trump or whatever. I'm going to focus on Florida. And then people would have asked him, why didn't you run? You always want people to ask, why didn't you run? Then why did you run? <laughs> right? And so people right now are asking Juan DeSantis, why did you run? Six months ago, they were saying, why, why don't you run? And you always want them saying, why don't you run? The timing was never right for DeSantis. And I was saying on this show and other places, uh, there's never been a lane for DeSantis. There's never been a narrative for his candidacy. There's never been a constituency that was going to get him to where he needed to go. I think he just saw a bunch of people saying, we can raise $100 million for you. And you know we can push through that way. And Trump's going to go down with all these indictments. And he believed it. He bought it. I mean... There's a lot of there's a lot of political consultants that have gotten rich off of lying to candidates when there's a lot of money involved. That's one of the unfortunate truths of this business is there's always a political consultant who will take your money and tell you what you want to hear as opposed to taking your money and telling you what you don't want to hear. Okay, true. That's a good point. Thank you so yeah. much, Mike. I appreciate it. Great to see you again. You bet. Thanks for joining and we'll let you know of course where we're going to be next time. Pag how are things in New York? Mike, how are you? Doing great. It's great to hear your voice. Good to, good to hear yours again, too. Um, I want to rewind the tape a little bit back to where you were saying how Democrats, are, particularly at the top, are, are elitist. Well, that has trickled down to uh, a couple of months ago. There was a town uh, Democratic meeting and Assemblyman Steve Stern was there and someone brought up the topic of affordable housing, and that was bouncing around the room a lot. And then someone in front of me had said that, well, you know, people on Long Island are sending their kids to these elitist colleges, and they come back and the kids can't afford to live here. And that cued it up for me to say, well, I'm a working class nurse. I've been living here. Well, I grew up here. I can't afford to live here. And are the Democrats the party of elites or are they party of the working class? And the room just went boom, silent. And Stern did not say yes, no, and he didn't know what to say. So that has right. tripled down. So, um, who, so was it you who said that it was working class or somebody else said that? Oh, no, it was me. The guy yeah, in front of me. Be yeah. Be careful. You lose a lot of friends like that. It's one thing for a Republican to go in a room with Democrats. They think I'm a bad guy anyway. Incidentally, I, I, you'll love this, Peg. I'm going to speak to a group called the Rossmore Democratic Club tomorrow. I, I, be my, you know, I don't speak to Democratic clubs because I've never really been invited. This is one of the largest Democratic clubs in the entire country. Mm -hmm. I mean, like three, three, four hundred tonight. Their membership is in the thousands. Um, but I, I'm going to give them that message. But it's one thing for me to go and say that. Something else for you as a, as a Democratic activist. I mean, you got guts, lady. I like it, but. It's true. The Democrat Party's got to get back to its working class roots if it wants to start stop losing Latino voters. It just has to. Absolutely. Absolutely. And of course, I got that idea from you about turning <laughs> the working class. Blame me. Yeah. But I heard from that Mike Madrid guy. Yeah, they'll love me for that. Yeah, right. No, Mike Madrid said it. And I didn't say that. But uh, yeah, no, it's trickled down. It's it's trickled down. And the, this elitist thing, just, and you're absolutely right about that. So. 
Um, I, the question that I have is, well, before this thing with Israel, but I guess I can throw it in with it, with this question. How do Democrats get funding for Ukraine and Israel with, with the uh, House Republicans in such disarray and no leader? Well, look, I think they're going to get it. And remember, that I don't know that Iran has a real urge, uh, uh, Israel has a real urgent need against Iran. I, I may or may not. I, I haven't followed up. I haven't read on it. I know that the Iron Dome has been largely depleted. So they, they do need to replace that. But we have armaments now that we can give them to do that. So we can give them just, just those, those arms. And I'm, I'm sure Biden uh, would have the ability to do that. Um, I would also suggest there's probably such little resistance in the Congress to that that they could probably do it with the current, you know, functionary speaker. And if nobody says anything, that won't be a problem, except for maybe some of the folks in the squad may raise some concerns about that. But I think if Biden were to try to do it unilaterally, he probably wouldn't be questioned. Now, maybe that's that's either in ignorance of the process and the law. I'm sure there's probably mm-hmm. some great lawyers that would say that Madrid, that's that's disinformation. That's wrong. It's not the way that it works. They, they would I would rely on them. But let me tell you how I'm thinking about this as a political strategist. And it comes back, it goes back to the previous, uh, the very first question, which is, if you want to be helpful in this, even online, with whatever activism you can, we need to start drawing the corollary between Ukraine and Israel. Yes. This splits MAGA in half. They have no answer to it because it's the truth. Putin is the common denominator behind what happened in Israel and behind what happened in what is happening in Ukraine. That's why Zelensky is going there. Mm-hmm. So we need to start showing that standing with Israel is standing with Ukraine, standing with Ukraine is standing with Israel. And frankly, so is standing with Taiwan, as I mentioned earlier. Absolutely. We are fools if we don't see the connection between Russia, Iran, and China and what they're trying to do globally. Like, it's as clear as day. The only people that don't want to see it at a professional level, I would argue, are the right-wing MAGA folks who are probably on the payroll of Russia anyway to do this through all these nefarious nonprofits that they set up on top of other nonprofits on top of them to funnel Russian money to start paying right-wingers to be pro-Russia and anti-Ukraine. Like that, if we don't think that that's happening, like the Charlie Kirks of the world aren't somehow resourced by that kind of money, then you're crazy. Of course they are. Like that's where this is coming. It's all tried to, it's all, it's all designed to destabilize democracy. That's the whole intent. And that's what Ukraine, that's what the Russian intent is in Ukraine. That's what Hamas is doing in Israel. That's what, you know, Taiwan, Chinese are doing with Taiwan. So keep equating those two. Keep helping people connect the dots because a lot of people don't yet. God, I'm holding back a really big sneeze. We, we need to start drawing that nexus and having people realize that all roads lead to Vladimir Putin. That's ultimately what this is. And it's, it's not hard to figure out. It's all meant the, the leading force of global terror is, is Vladimir Putin. I definitely agree. I think for the voters on the ground, though, I think foreign policy feels a little weedy and they don't want to go in there. So, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's going to be tough with the voters because that, I think that yeah, just that's that's how I, voters I, feel. It's weedy because it is, but. Yeah, look, you're seeing the right wing right now trying to like take Israel as their thing and they're trying to, you know, uh, make hay of, of, of some of the more extreme elements of the left. It's frankly, they should. Mm. But 
but that's not going to last long when people start realizing what this is. The more that we draw the nexus between Ukraine and Israel and people fighting these, these terrorist sources, the more people are going to be like, yeah, hell yeah, we're with Ukraine. Hell yes, we're with Israel. Like this is why the West has been successful. We've stood up to these efforts in the past and why we're going to keep being successful. I, and I see reporters are going after Tlaib now. And I, I think she's the only one out of the squad that really concerns me on, on these issues is Tlaib. I, thought, I think Alexandra doesn't, but Tlaib does. I think AOC has handled this really, really well. She's really oh, good. Yeah. God, she's she's good. I don't agree with her on 90% of her policy positions, but she's a damn good politician. And she's right. I will tell you, she gets out there with the working class and with the union guys and all that. She, she really, she shows up. Well, I see she, her doing that. She's right on this. And I guarantee you, I guarantee you, she's going to start drawing the nexus between these two publicly, between mm-hmm. Ukraine funding and funding for Israel. Because it, one, it's the truth, but two, it's really, really good, smart politics for the Democrats. She's also got think, some Jewish uh, ancestors or something somewhere yeah. back there that she, she spoke about a couple of years ago. Look, Bernie Sanders. So maybe, Bernie Sanders supports Ukraine funding. Is he going to support you? Is funding for Israel? I'm sure he is and does. So, so there are those elements even on the very far left. Mm. This, this right, this, this. What's fascinating me is this bubble that's emanated on the right that is the most zealously anti-Hamas, anti-Arab, pro-Israel, you know, segment of American politics. They are going to be exposed when the when the dots are connected between. The funders that are trying to commit ge- look, look, what happened? The, the horrors coming out of, of of southern Israel right now are, are they're unspeakable. It's hard to, to the inhumanity is hard to comprehend. But what I will say is this: they're not terribly dissimilar to what we saw in Bucha and Irpin last year when Russians were making torture chambers in the basements of peasant homes and what they were doing to men and women and children. Absolutely. Like this, it's terror. It's designed to terrorize you. That's the, the strength that they have. And the leader, the global leader of terror is Vladimir Putin. So and just keep drawing that connection, make people see it and you'll watch the, the sea change that happens. I think it was going to be very destructive to the American right. Okay. Thank you so much, Mike. Peggy, thank you. Great to see you. We'll let you know where we're going to be going on next. Renee from North Carolina. You're on. Go ahead and unmute. Hey, Mike. How are you? I can barely hear you. I think it's probably on your end. Can you hear me now? Barely, barely. Can anybody hear Renee? Really can't hear you now, Renee, and I don't want to lose you because you waited so long. Let me give you a second to try and correct it. We're a patient group here. We've been on. You guys have been hanging out with me, too. We're like an hour and 20 in, too, so... Let me, um, there you are. I can hear you, or at least I can hear some noise. 
Can you hear me now? Bare, barely. Go ahead and ask the question, and I'll repeat it for everybody, but I can't barely hear you. Okay. I have a, it's actually a smaller question underlying, because uh, you answered most of my big ones. I was wondering why, uh, when I saw the package for Ukraine come out again today, I was wondering why, up to this point, we have not sent them any aircraft. And I know that Denmark is sending them some, and they're doing, we're doing some training, but I was wondering if, they, if you knew what the rationale behind that was. I know, look, I know that it has a lot to do with how it would be viewed in terms of an act of war from Russia. And there are a lot of decision makers, and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna try not to armchair quarterback on this too much, although I have weighed in. I do believe that there are too many people in our foreign policy process and too many people in our military industrial complex that are cold warriors with a cold war mentality. I'm not suggesting we should be giving airplanes uh, to to the Ukrainians, um, or at least not our most you know up to date. I think we have given them some older planes. We can check with that, but I think this is more appropriate for those countries like Poland and the Baltics that who border Ukraine and view this as an immediate threat. The types of weapons and weapon systems we give as Americans and as NATO generally are going to be viewed more as an egregious act of war than those that come from those those border states. That's just the reality. Does it make that much of a difference? I, I don't know. And it's easy for me to armchair quarterback. The, the truth of the matter is we're still here. We haven't died in a thermonuclear war, so they're doing something right. Right. But I do believe that um, we, we need to end this this war like it's not the winter. Winter's here. The offensive fell short. Um, but all things considered, Russia's military capacity has been cut by 50 percent. The ruble is crashing right now. Their, their economic their economy is, is coming tumbling down. The only thing that is saving Russia right now is is the price of gas, the price of oil hasn't dropped another five or six dollars per barrel of oil. It's sitting like 87, 88 right now. If that hits 80, Russia's done. I mean, the regime falls apart. The economy collapses because this, this is becoming a very costly war, as costly as it is for us. And it is costly. We're spending a lot of money we don't have, by the way. This debt stuff is really very real, but it's nowhere near where Russia is at. Right. So there's this, there's this game of attrition that's going on of, of outlasting Russia at this point. I'm convinced that that's what's going on. And China's economy is so weak that they can't bolster them. They're going to start taking weapons from the North Koreans. The, uh, you know, there's just there's there's all sorts of obviously gamesmanship and bartering going back and forth between these countries that are all, frankly, on pretty shaky ground economically, which makes the imperative of their military victories almost um impossible to avoid because if they're not successful militarily they will be deposed at home and i think that that probably goes for xi too i'm not an expert on china but you don't need to be an expert to see some of the politics going on and realize that china's in, in a very precarious position all over the place so I, I know that that's getting off the topic of 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 planes and our planes there but the fact that we've given them, I remember it was a big deal when we first sent the first round of javelins, the first anti-tank to allow the Ukrainians to compete. Then we sent the HIMARS. Those HIMARS 
are one of the most advanced weapon systems for the type of warfare that's engaged right now. It's made all the difference from the Ukrainians. Once we give them aircraft, we also run the risk, and I'm not saying this would happen, but you, this is war. You run the risk of, of plane incursions into the Russian border with U.S. planes. Right. That, that can credibly be viewed as an act of it's war. Yeah. And so that's different than having a high Mars. That's different than firing anti-tank javelins. This is planes that can go in and hit you know, Russian targets with, with U.S. made planes, that's, you know, Russia's got a claim that that's, that's an act of war. And yeah. that, that changes the dynamic. So. Can I ask you a follow-up question? Yeah. yeah. Um, do you think that Russia is like backdoor testing so many fronts to see what the American response is going to continue to be? Yes. Yeah. And it's been planned for many, many, for a very long time. Remember, the actual hot war, the kinetic war, this whole plan where all of this started going into motion happened in the 2014 invasion of Crimea. Right. This is a long-term plan by Vladimir Putin, and he's been laying the groundwork by investing in Western countries by buying off lobbyists, by buying off politicians, by flooding the zone with with Russian rubles and dollars into nonprofits in the, in the United States with very advanced psyops, operations and communications, we talk about this being misinformation and disinformation and kind of the cult that surrounded Donald Trump, but it's all true. But this is extraordinarily sophisticated psychological operation, psyops. This isn't just Facebook ads, okay? That's where we first started to see it. But when I was on the 2020 campaign, you know, running again, doing the Lincoln Project work against Donald Trump, I was seeing stuff that was, look, I know all the political consultants that work in Republican politics. Everybody was working on those campaigns. I know what they're capable of. The stuff that we were seeing was like a different universe. It wasn't just a leveling up. It was, this stuff was military grade communication strategies. And of course it's FSB. It's the old KGB that has been, you know, developing and testing this stuff since the 1940s and fifties and to great, great effect. And that's what we were seeing. And that's what's happened is half of our country has been radicalized not just because, you know, the Koch brothers were running ads. This is way beyond that shit. This is foreign interference in trying to destabilize Western government. Not, not just Western, all democracies, but you take out the United States, you take out, you know, that's the heart of the whole, the whole free world. So, yes, the answer is yes. So, we're essentially, we are already in a world war of sorts. And I've said it before. We are in a world war. We're the first global world. This is World War III. This is the way warfare is going to be played in the digital age. The, 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 the kinetic war, the hot war, is going to be fought the way that you're seeing happening in, the, in Ukraine and what you just saw with Hamas and terrorist activity in, in Israel. There's a good chance you see it in, in, in Taiwan, but look, I would strongly suggest and surmise that if there are radicalized elements, which there are in the United States, a lot of you know, white supremacist groups will be called to violence for all sorts of reasons, and they're going to try to destabilize us domestically, internally. That's where the fight's going to be. Are we in the middle of World War III? Yes, we absolutely 100% are. If you don't think that the fight in Ukraine is about the United States, you're crazy. If you don't think what just happened in Israel 
is is it part and parcel of this global transformation that's going on you're not paying attention or you're choosing not to see it if you're not looking at the rise of dictatorships that happened in from 2014 up until you know we deposed a lot of them we've got bolsonaro out in brazil is down there for that um you know duterte in the philippines orban still hanging around in hungary like this is bad shit. but it's not organic it's not just happening Think about the Russian money that went into the anti-vaccine messaging. A lot of the anti-vaccine, 90% of it was funded by Russian sources. This is all designed to destabilize democracy and pit ourselves against each other and convince and radicalize a swath of our, of our public. And it's been extraordinarily successful. And look, the only way a lot of this stuff ends, all of this global chaos ends, is by removing Putin. Now, having said that, you know, does that end it? Well, well, no. Someone's going to replace him, and who the hell knows if he's worse? But for the moment, yeah. that's what's driving a lot of this. I think that's something that the mainstream media is going to have to push because the average layman is not going to be able to make those connections on their own. And it's going to have to be a broad, widespread messaging campaign to really, you know, connect those dots in a common sense way. I, that, we need your help doing that. I mean, I, I, if it, yeah, just keep pushing. Like I was, I was telling Peg, that's what you got to push. When you see that stuff out there, if you're engaged in social media, keep drawing. Look, the reporters are the, the, the Reuters already is finding this stuff. They're, they're they're saying, wait, Iran doesn't have the capability to do this or to do that. What other funding sources do? Who else could have gotten this stuff to Hamas? There's only a small handful. That is less than a handful. There's two or three actors on the global stage that could have mounted this, that could have funded this, that could have trained for this. And it's not hard to figure out who benefits from it. So those dots are going to be connected. What our job is to do is connect them domestically so that the Republicans don't get away with this bullshit of just saying, oh, look, it, it's the squad on the right. They're anti-Jew. They're, an, they're anti-Semitic. They're anti-Israel. The goal is to say, wait a second. You guys, you keep talking about this $6 billion of money that was never actually spent, like trying to say Biden funded the war. You guys are the ones that are pro-Putin here because you won't take him out by funding Ukraine. If we had fully funded Ukraine, this war would have been over six months ago. Yeah. So, yeah. Thanks so much, Renee. It's always great to hear from you. Evan, you have been remarkably, remarkably patient. And I guess you're in Napa. And, and having a little bit of connection issues. But you're on stage, brother. Just go ahead and unmute, and we're ready to hear from you. There we go. There he is. <laughs> yeah, uh, Napa's a bit spotty. Um, I hope you can hear me well. I'm actually driving home, so this is through the speakers in the truck. I can hear um, you great. Yeah. Perfect. Uh I had to drop out for work, so I missed about an hour. Has there been any conversation about the polling data over the last, you know, six months or however long it's been since we last had a show? Well, I, no, you have not missed anything on that front. I, I, I want to talk a lot about it. Right before the show, I was thinking, i got to get into this. Now that we're an hour and a half deep, I'm a little bit afraid of it because you know me. I'll talk about this for an hour. <laughs> yeah, you know, I could we, listen, but your voice. So. Yeah, my voice will go. But let me say this. One is we will visit with this very shortly uh, because I'm, I am, I'm very concerned about a lot of what I am, what I am seeing. 
Um, and what I mean by that is not the polling numbers and where they're going. What, I, what I'm talking about is the quality of the data sets that we're, we're seeing now and our ability to use publicly sourced data to give us a picture. Now, if you've been following me for, you know, since the 2020 election cycle, I was privy to a lot more data and analytics on that cycle with the Lincoln Project than I will be this year. But I can still do a good job of kind of explaining and, 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 and condensing some of the public data to give a very strong sense of where things are at. So let me speak, and I'm going to try to be brief. You all know that's bullshit because I'm not ever brief about anything. But let me say this. The polling fundamentals for uh, Joe Biden's reelection remain strong. Okay, and I believe that they will get stronger. I think he's going to get a post-Israel bump, despite what the Republicans are are are, are putting out there—that he was the cause of the war, he funded the war. I, I don't believe that. I believe that uh, us standing with Israel and Israel's already put out strong statements, and the, the 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 response is going to be, I think, overwhelming and strong. And my heart breaks for the innocents that are going to die, but it's 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 um, it is what it is. Um, having said that. As I have always cautioned about the fundamentals of the race, is things change. You always all know anybody who's been listening to me. I always, you know, that's a major caveat. What kind of things change? Exactly what happened. No one predicted that what happened 48 hours ago in Israel or four or five days ago, whenever it was, was going to happen. But here it is, and here we are. And these things happen in campaigns, and they rattle the numbers around a little bit. But the way I'm fundamentally looking at this race. A lot of people are very worried about the economy. I'm not worried about the economy. The economy has not been the number one deciding factor for those key constituent groups that move, either for Republicans or against Republicans or for Democrats or against Democrats in the last four election cycles. Okay? They just aren't. And so the media overemphasizes the economy and the economic direction. Why? Because that's what they've been trained to do from people like me over the last 30 years. When polling says the economy is the number one issue, it is the number one issue in their lives and in their minds, but is it the deciding and determining factor when they actually go out and vote? The answer is no. And the media has not done a good job of articulating that difference, but it's a hard story to tell unless you're getting deep into the crosstabs like we do on a show like this, and I can walk deep, deep, deep into this and start saying things like college-educated suburban white women, U.S.-born, Hispanic, blue-collar, non-college-educated males. These are the numbers that are moving this direction. These are moving that direction. That's not made for TV stuff. That's not made for Twitter stuff. But this is the way campaigns are looking at it. And for the moment, those are still the two key constituencies that I'm looking at. Hispanics moving right, college-educated white women moving left. The question really becomes, has have we topped out of, of white women moving left, moving to the Democratic Party? Are they already locked in there now? Three of the last four elections, they've moved to the Democrats in meaningful enough numbers to secure them victories. And have we stopped seeing the shift that's happening with U.S.-born Hispanics to the right? We saw it move big in 2020, and we saw it plateau and stay there in 2022. Are we going to see a continued movement, or has it stopped at the level it's at? Or can Democrats pull them back? That's the big question in my mind. Those remain the main two groups. However, I'm not going to suggest that last year's battle or the last campaign is the same as this campaign. One big caveat to that, 90% of the time it is, but you don't want to get caught up in that 10% when it's not. So you've got to watch all of the numbers. So the horse race polls that we're watching are causing me a lot of consternation because they're not 
giving us really quality information. They're focused on the horse race, and that is not good. It wasn't terribly bad in 2020, although it was pretty off, right? Biden's numbers were looking and pulling a lot stronger than they were heading into election night. Uh, the race was much closer than most people, myself excluded. I was saying it's going to be a, a tight race. If you were watching, it's going to be a very close race. I knew we'd win Arizona. I knew we'd pull out Georgia. I was nervous about Wisconsin. I was confident about the 270 map. I knew that Biden was going to get elected. I knew it was going to be very close. But most of the public polling had Biden winning by a very, very wide margin, much wider than the popular vote actually suggested. I also am concerned about some of the movement in states like um, uh, Wisconsin. Wisconsin gives me a lot of heartache, um, but I'm very bullish on North Carolina. I just wish the Democrats would invest a few million dollars. That's nothing. It's a pittance right there on registration and put North Carolina into play. So I'm getting off topic here, but I'm going to be talking a lot about polling because I don't think that this cycle is going to give us the type of insight that we were getting the last presidential election cycle. And even then it wasn't terribly great. It wasn't bad. But if I, was a, if I wasn't a very sophisticated consumer of polling, I would have been very disillusioned by what I was seeing and going, I, I can't make sense of this. Everybody's just saying all sorts of shit and, and I don't really understand it. I want to be, be here to help you guys in this cycle explain it. And I guess I'm using this as a predicate to say, um, I, I'm concerned by what we're seeing in the methodology of the polling. I'm not concerned in the fundamentals of the outcome of the race yet. Uh, that doesn't mean I expect it will change, uh, but I, I, the dynamics of the race are going to 100% change. But the fundamentals at this point in time, if the election were held tomorrow, Biden would, would win commandingly, commandingly. Problem is the election is not tomorrow, right? It's a long time. And those, that, that ebb and flow may change. Nothing has changed the fundamentals of the race to make me change my mindset. But again, the polling is going to be really bouncy. There's, there's a lot of, I don't want to just say they're bad polls. I just don't think that the way the polling is, is, is providing information is telling us what we need to discern the outcomes of races the way that it was historically able to in the past. I hope, I hope that makes sense, Evan. By the way, book is going to be coming out in spring or summer of 2024. I think I'll be doing a book signing event in the Sonoma area. Uh, it's not terribly close to Napa. Um, maybe I'll do a quick Napa uh, shoot because it's Napa. I don't, I don't know if there's probably a whole lot of Napa guys uh, uh, and, and women out there that are following what Mike Madrid's talking about. But, but Evan, if you are, uh, I'll let you know with plenty of, of time. If I make it out from Sacramento, you can make it out to Napa. We'll, we'll have a beer and a cigar together, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about polling uh, at a book signing event, and we'll let you know. With that, my voice is completely shot. Guys, it's been great to uh, reconnect with so many familiar faces. I hope that this has been helpful. I want to remind you again, this is hopefully the last time we're going to be doing this on Colin. Uh, we're going to be changing platforms for a whole lot of reasons, the main one being just don't have a whole lot of confidence in who owns uh, uh, Colin anymore and don't want to be supportive of, of forces that we don't think are doing good in the world. So I will be working behind the scenes with some folks to try to find a better platform for this. Follow me if you can uh, on the Mastodon uh, or uh, Threads and or X Twitter 
if for no other reason than just to find out where we're migrating. But thank you guys for a couple of things. One is asking for this to come back. It meant a lot. A lot of you guys were saying, we need a mic drop episode. That's a sign that the election cycle is getting close enough and you guys have a lot of questions and hopefully I can provide some insight. Uh, the second is jumping up into the queue early. Thank you for that. Uh, I obviously talked way too much as the way it, as I tend to, but it's better to answer questions that you guys have. And it's great to see six or so people in that queue uh, because I don't, I don't, uh, I can at least focus my gibberish in a certain place. So thanks for that. And again, uh, thank you in advance for 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 being flexible and sticking with us as we migrate to a better platform to hopefully provide you a better service. You guys can always find me if there are topics you want me to discuss anytime throughout the week. Go ahead and shoot them to me. Um, don't think that I'm not paying attention. I'm getting all of them. And also, um, if I don't bring them up, it's, it's oftentimes because we will be following up with a deeper episode and a deeper look at all of these topics. Um, Evan, again, thanks for the reminder on polling. We're going to have to jump into that again because this year is going to be a lot screwier than it was in the midterms and certainly in the last presidential cycle. With that, guys, Colin uh, has been a really uh, great uh, opportunity and time as it lasted. This is Mike Drop signing off, and we will see you next week. New place, new platform, same smile and face. Have a good night, guys.